I love that scene from Charlie Brown's Christmas. It reminds us truly of what Christmas is all about. And what a, what a sweet sign, scene as, as Linus reads the Christmas story. And uh, this really is a very sweet time of the year. What could be sweeter than a, a God born as a baby? I love the simplicity of the story. I, I love as we think about this time of year, as, uh, all the decorations and all the sweets we're going to be eating and all the gifts that will be exchanged. It really is a great time. And nothing makes it more exciting than watching children unwrap their gifts, Right? I, I do like the story of another cartoon character, Dennis the Menace. He shows up in the kitchen with his mom. He's got a big box full. His mom's mouth is wide open. And he says to his mother, Mother, we're going to have to get in contact with Santa Claus and tell him not to bring that train I asked for. I found one in the top of Dad's closet. <laughs> well, sometimes it doesn't always go the right way. But we love the, the sweetness of the, the whole story. But, but here's what I want you to recognize this morning. Don't fail to recognize in the middle of the sweetness, in the middle of the story, that the Christmas story is both sweet and subversive. It, it is sweet, but it is subversive. Listen, the first time Charlie Brown Christmas was shown was in 1965 on the CBS network. And it was extremely controversial, that reading that Linus gave. Because CBS recognized that if this story were true, it does change everything. You see, the Christmas story challenges the status quo. It did in the first century, and it does today. If it's true, everything changes. Let's talk about challenging the status quo. We've been looking at the two very distinctive Christmas stories in the Bible. Last week we looked at Matthew. This week we look at Luke. Now understand the difference. Here's why the stories are so different. Matthew was written to an oppressed people. It was written to a group of people who were in trouble. Luke is written to the Romans. It's written to an oppressive culture. You, you see, Matthew's written to a troubled culture. Luke is written to a triumphant culture. And so it appears very different what they emphasize. Uh, to make our point, let me share with you a quotation from the first century. He is the Lord, the Son of God, the bringer of peace, and the Savior of the world. Can anyone guess who that quotation is about. Well, we would say, of course, that's Jesus Christ. Wrong. That quotation is about Caesar Augustus. There was such a thing in the first century as imperial worship. And Caesar Augustus has set himself up as being the Savior, as of actually being God. Here's an inscription we found from the first century. By sending Augustus as a Savior for us, and to those who came after us, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the good news that has come to men through him. So we have all these words that you and I know. Good news, Savior, Lord, Mighty One, Prince of Peace, applied to this pagan ruler. And that's why when Luke is written to this culture, 
he's taking some not so subtle digs at the dictator Caesar Augustus. Now let's just look at some passages from the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. First of all, let's look at what the angel said to Mary. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll call him Jesus. The word Jesus means Savior. He will be a great, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of the father David. Listen to what Zechariah says when he finds out that he and his wife Elizabeth and his son John the Baptist are going to be a part of this plan of bringing the Savior of the earth. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation as in the house of his servant David. As he said through the holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Who do they need salvation from? Who is the hand that hates them? It's the Roman government. So this is a subversive document. Listen to what the angels said to those pagan shepherds who are told to go celebrate the birth of this baby. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And then, in the most famous part of the whole story, when the Virgin Mary finds out that she is to give birth to the Son of God, she breaks off in an incredible hymn called the Magnificat. Listen to what she says in light of who Caesar thought he was. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble uh, of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for us. Holy is his name. So his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. And he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. What ruler will this Jesus humble? It's Caesar Augustus. And that's why this hymn called the Magnificat was an incredibly controversial hymn throughout history. It was the famous missionary, E. Stanley Jones, who wrote, The Magnificat is the most revolutionary document in the world. It turns the power structure of the world upside down. The late Archbishop of Canterbury would ban his missionaries from reading the Magnificat and the mission field because it was so revolutionary. And in the 1980s, in the country of Guatemala that was socialist or communist at worst, the reading of this Christmas hymn of Mary, the Magnificat, was banned in public. Why? Because this baby is dangerous. We've got to see that. 
beneath the sweetness and the, sud- the simplicity of the story, we have one who comes as a baby to challenge the whole power structure of the known world. He's dangerous. And I want you to know today, he's dangerous today. He challenges the status quo. You can't accept him as Lord without challenging everything about your life. I want to talk about four things that he challenges today. Four common beliefs that Jesus comes and shakes up. Number one would be the belief that most hold is that I am king. You you see, we live in a very independent culture. There's a great amount of good things about American culture, but one of the dangerous things about American culture is that it's built on the individual and the individual's power. And if we're not careful, that translates into we run our own life. Now, naturally, we all know that because of uh, our, our sinful nature that we are naturally selfish. You, you picked up on that so far in your life? We're nef- not, ask your mate, all right? We are naturally selfish, aren't we? If you take a group picture during Christmas and someone shows it to you, who's the first person you're looking for? Yourself, right? Unless you have grandbabies and that changes it all, all right? You're looking for that. Why? Because we're naturally just just sort of selfish. And so it it ends up being we have all these false kings. How can you tell if you have a false king? If, if, If it's money, if it's position... If it's pleasure, it's a false king when it means too much to you or upsets you too much, all right? You know, you you can tell that you've let it get on a throne in your heart when it affects you too much. I'm not saying if you um, had a salary cut, you wouldn't be upset about it. We would be. But I'm saying if it throws you completely out of kilter, it means too much to you. Anything that you could lose that completely devastates you is probably a good sign that you've made it a God. But you see, guys, there there are all kinds of gods and kings out there, but the greatest one in our culture is that we've made ourselves God. So here's what we say. I do what I want to do, how I want to do it, when I want to do it. I mean, no one is to tell me what to do. Not the government, not the church, not God. I do what I want to do. I'm the king. And and here's the Christmas story. Jesus comes in as a new king in town. Jesus comes in to say, you know what? Rome doesn't run your life. Washington doesn't run your life. I run your life. I am the king, and you need to allow me to rule. I ask you, do you trust him to rule? Maybe to this point in your life, you have ruled your own life. Can I ask you, where is that getting you? Do you trust your own emotions and decision-making ability and impulses, or do you trust him? I'm telling you, when you start trusting your own, that's when we all get in trouble. When you trust him as the king of your life, that is when you are blessed. Now, the second thing he confronts, this the status quo, is that power comes by might. You see, Rome ruled by intimidation 
and power, conquest, and might. Rome ruled the world. It was the greatest empire that Luke is attacking in the history of the world. And it brought about a certain form of peace because it it could rule. Now, here's the difference. Rome rules by might and power and coercion. Our new king rules by love. He's vulnerable. We're almost uncomfortable There's a God so vulnerable that he shrinks himself down, is born to a a young teenage girl who's laid, he's laid in a feeding trough. I mean, this is God. The the story's almost embarrassing. I mean, we would like to change it. That's not what real power looks like, we think. I love the story of the little boy. He's um, going to be the innkeeper for the Christmas play, and they've practiced for weeks. And uh, he, he's just got one simple line, no room in the inn, no room in the inn, and he's practiced it. And finally the night comes, and the worship center's packed, and they're having the play, and Mary and Joseph come to the inn, knock on the door. He answers it, and little Mary and Joseph look so pitiful. They ask about a room. He says, I... I'll let you use my room. (laughs) It it destroyed the whole play. It's part because we're a little uncomfortable with this God who on surface appears to be vulnerable and lowly and humble and even weak. And it doesn't just, it's not just at the manger scene, friends. It goes all the way to the cross. And, And what it's saying to us is that power is not by might. The greatest power on the earth is not to coerce someone, make someone, pressure someone, manipulate someone. The greatest power is the power of love. When God wanted to change you and I, he didn't come set up a big throne in Rome, look all imperial, and issue commands. He came in a manger as a baby, the most vulnerable being, to say how much he loved us and that he'd like you to choose to love him back. Now, here's the facts of history. This incredible power, Rome, fell. Christianity exploded because the power, the greatest power on this earth is the power of vulnerable, lowly love. We need to remember that. We need to remember in our culture today as we think, see things changing on us and we see America seemingly go further and further away from our Christian roots. It's a scary time. But I remind you, our greatest power will be for us to live lives as Jesus of love. In 1949, when the communists overcame China, there were thousands of missionaries all across China. There were three million Christians. And everyone was so fearful about what was going to happen. And finally, a decade or two ago, when China began to open back up, For us to go back in there, we found out the most shocking thing. Christianity had not only survived in that culture, it had exploded. And there were 50 million Christians. 
And I say to you in our culture, while we think everything's going haywire because the powers to be are trying to clamp down on us, I remind you that the greatest power is still that lowly disciple of Jesus living a life of unconditional love. Number three, status quo number three, peace is elusive. You see, Caesar Augustus' way of peace was peace through power. Christ's way of peace was peace through love. The question is, which do we accept? Do we want peace in this church? It's not going to come by the use of power and manipulation. It's going to come through love. Do you want peace in your home? It's not going to come because you set yourself up as the dictator. It's because you set yourself up as the one who will love the most. Do you want peace in your heart? It's not going to come because you feel coerced to give your life to Jesus. It will come because you choose to follow this lowly baby who is a king. You see, peace is elusive. As long as peace is about me having control in my church, in my home, in my workplace, even in my own heart, as long as it's about me having the control, it's elusive. Because some days you may have it and some days you might. Some days things will go your way and some days they'll go somebody else's way. And it's so, it's so elusive. But my friends, when peace comes through submission to Christ, when it's an inside deal and not an outside deal, then that peace you've been seeking all of your life will no longer be elusive. Because it's on the inside, not on the outside. And number, number four, here's the status quo we got to challenge, and that is that God is distant. That God is distant. I mean, our culture, there's a lot of doubt about God. There's a higher percentage of atheists and agnostic in our culture today than ever. And people will say, if, if there is a God, then he, he's way out there, he's distant, he's unconcerned, he's disconnected, he's unapproachable. The Christmas story confronts that status quo and says, God is, oh, God is, he's right here with us. It's a crazy story, my friends, that God himself would come in the form of a baby to live among us, to be Emmanuel. I want to read you something I saw. Joe, I hope you don't mind this, but I was reading Joe Walker's Facebook page this week after he was baptized. And uh, a lot of people were posting congratulations. And Joe wrote about his life. I want to read what he put. To be quite honest, four months ago, I was an agnostic. I knew there was something out there, but wasn't sure what. With a nudge from Aaron and Cheryl Bonekeeper and Mac Walker and the, some FaceTime with Perry Brown, I committed to at least reading Genesis. The struggle in my mind for proof and the thinking that everything could be explained away with science was eating me alive. Faith, that's nonsense. I've seen this or that on the internet. I know how everything works and those Bible slingers are just weird and ignorant. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I, I couldn't have been more wrong. I was the ignorant one. I was the one struggling to explain away the unexplainable. It was utterly exhausting. So Genesis led to the New Testament. More discussions ensued and the fog has started to clear. 
The unwavering faith of a five-year-old, the love and emotions I have for my wife and family, the sweet face of my little beagle, the way my mind is pressed to write poetry and to draw pictures, when the sun breaks the tree line and the mirrors across the glass pond. I can't explain these things, and that's okay. These are gifts from God, and through Christ, I'm able to thank Him, and so much more. How could I not love Him? And listen to this. A close friend pointed me to this when I was lost and ready and, and ready to give up. And I read it every day. It's Colossians chapter 1. It sums up the, the incarnation. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before everything else, and he holds the creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the head. So he is first He is first in everything, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth and by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Thank you, Joe. He's not distant. He's not elusive. He's here. And it changes everything. So in the midst of Christmas, I ask you this question. Are you tired of the status quo? Seriously. Are you tired of it? This is the great thing about this story. It changes the status quo. If we can get past the sweetness of it, and get to the subversive, power-changing, life-altering, kingdom-destroying, kingdom-building part of this story. The status quo in your life and my life could be changed. I like the story I read about Satan. It said that uh, there's a tradition that Satan would throw a Christmas party in hell. And a demon came up to Satan in the middle of the party and sarcastically said with a smile on his face, Merry Christmas, you majesty, your majesty. And Satan replied, we better keep this merry because if they ever get serious about this, we'll all be in trouble. My friends, if we get serious about this story, It changes everything. It's a story that changes the status quo in your life. Guys, guys, here's what we see. History is dated by this story. Everything comes before it or after it in history. Why? Because it changed literally everything. Here's the good news. It can change you. You don't have to keep living in the status quo. Because God literally broke into history and invaded the earth, everything changes. 
Here's one of my favorite stories. It was written here in Montgomery probably 20 years ago. There's a man, some of you know, named John Smith, who used to preach at the Carriage Hills Church of Christ. And John Smith writes that one day he's riding down a road in our city, and he sees some soccer fields, and there's some little kids playing soccer. He didn't know any of them, but he decided to stop and watch the soccer match. So he stopped his car, and he he went over, and he watched these two teams of five-year-old boys playing soccer. And he said he was just intrigued watching the match. They were two really good teams, team one and team two. And through the whole first part of the game, it was tied. No one could score. They both had great little goalies and great little athletes. But then something happened. The team two coach took out all of his best athletes except his goalie. Team one coach left everybody in. And the game began to change. The little goalie was a great little athlete, but the team, one team, was too, too powerful, and they began to score on him and score on him. And the little five-year-old goalie, you could tell he was so frustrated. And John Smith said, I could tell who his parents were. His dad had just got off work. He still had a suit and tie and shoes on. And him and his wife have been watching the game. They've enjoyed it to this point. And now they see their little boy struggling to stop the goals. He's feverishly throwing his body here and there, trying to. But team one scores one goal, then two goals, then three goals. And, and, and Smith said, you could see the tension on his parents' face. And then he said, I knew what was going to happen. Team one scored goal four and goal five. And the little five-year-old goalie broke down put his fist to his eyes, got on his knees, and just wept. John Smith said, I'm watching the parents. The father begins to take off in the middle of the game onto the field. The wife grabs him. Smith writes, I've never seen such a look in my life. He rips off from his wife. He runs to the field, all the way down the field. He goes in the middle of the game and picks his son up and begins to hug him. And the little boy begins to say, Daddy, Daddy, I tried so hard. I wanted to stop him. Daddy, I couldn't stop him. They kept scoring. And and the dad says, Son, calm down. Daddy, but I I was supposed to stop him and I couldn't. I was such a failure. Son, it's okay. Daddy, but I couldn't stop them scoring. And finally the father embraces him and says loud enough for the whole crowd to hear, Son, I love you. I'm proud of you. And I don't care how many times they scored on you. Nothing changes how I feel about you. And I love that story. My story, my friends, that is the story of the incarnation. It's a story that says that in the middle of all of our failure and a messed up power-hungry world, that God came as an innocent baby right to the middle of the field and grabbed us and said to us, I love you, I'm proud of you, I don't care how many times you've been scored on, I accept you. That's the story we embrace. Oh, it's a sweet story. But it's a subversive story. I want you to hear the story one more time. Ian McFarlane, would you come up here? I've asked Ian if he would come and read the story for us. And as we prepare our hearts to celebrate what God has done. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. 
An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He, he is Christ the Lord. This will, be assigned to, this will be assigned to you. You will find a babe, baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly a company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to, the, to men on whom his favor, favor rests. And the whole church said, Amen. Thank you. Isn't that a great story, guys? There's more there than meets the eye. This morning, if this story has shook you up and you need for us to pray for you, come to this front row and we'll take care of your prayer requests. But the greatest response to this message is to celebrate and praise God. If you read through the first two chapters of Luke, everybody's celebrating. Zachariah and Elizabeth are celebrating and praising God. Mary and Joseph are praising God. The pagan shepherds who are called to see the baby are praising God. Simeon, an old man who God has said, you're not going to die until you see the Savior, is breaking out in praise. Anna, a widow lady who's 84 years old, who has spent her life living in the temple of God, embraces this child and praises God. I'm telling you, everyone in the story is celebrating because it's the best news ever. My question for you and I this morning is, are we going to join the celebration? Over the next few moments, as we stand together, let's celebrate. Let's praise Him. Let's recognize not just the sweet surface of this story, but the life-changing message of this story. Let's all stand together and praise Him.